Good. It's uh, one minute past 11, so I have to start, and uh, we'll get cracking. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is, is Jeremy. I'm the, the guy that waved my hand, so if you want to find out about life groups, you can speak to myself or, or my wife, Becky, um, after the service. Um, so Becky and myself have been in the UK for, for 10 years now. We come from South Africa originally, lived in Port Elizabeth. We have three children. Two of them were born in South Africa, um, and they're at various stages of moving from South African accents to Brummie accents. Um, whereas Isaac was born in Good Hope Hospital, um, so he's been seven years in, in Sutton Coldfield, and uh, he's, he's our little Brummie um, through and through. Um, so that's our family. So as I say, we've, we've been here for, for 10 years. And this is kind of like a special year for us. It's, it's special in a number of ways. Becky, you don't mind me t- saying this, hey, because there's a lot of tens in this year. Becky turned 40 this year. We had our 20th wedding anniversary this year. We've been in the United Kingdom 10 years this year. So that'll be in uh, July. We, we celebrate 10 years in the UK. And we've, we've loved it. Um, a lot of people I speak to about... Why we moved to the UK can't really get it through the heads. Why would you move from South Africa to the United Kingdom? Um, and, and why do you love it? I don't get that. Well, let me just say it's quite simple. It, you, you can please a South African very easily. Something like public transportation that's reasonably um, you know, reliable, that'll, that'll make us happy. The ability to, to go to the theatre, um, that's great. Even if we don't go, the fact that we could... That makes us happy. It's, it's really cool. Um, the fact that, that, for the most part, people are looked after and that there's, there's a sense of, of social justice and, and wanting to look after each other. That makes a South African really happy. Um, free schooling, wow. That really makes a South African happy, as does um, free, free medical on the NHS at point of access. Sorry. Um, so it's really simple to make a South African happy. And all of those things, I think um, a lot of people take for granted. But for us, we look at it and we go, those are amazing um, things. It's, it's a wonderful country to live in. And there's so much to see and do. Um, I could talk about the countryside and all sorts of things. But there's so much. But sometimes, believe it or not, we find it challenging. And especially towards February, March, when... Winter just never seems to end, and it just drags on. And this has been the best year for it ever, hasn't it? You know, it just rains constantly. It's cold. The boiler breaks. You're shivering in your own house, and you're thinking, what is the point? Let's just go home now. And it's at times like that, especially for our family, that purpose becomes really really important. We need to know that the reason for us being here in the UK is stronger than any adversity that that would push us away from here. We need to have that purpose, and and it is around February, March when we reflect on the reasons why we moved to the UK. As lovely as the UK is, and as wonderful as all the perks are of living in the UK, um, at the end of the day, if you don't have a purpose that's greater than all of the negatives, you're going to feel, well, we will feel ourselves being dragged back to to South Africa. 
And we're going to well, they haven't seen Jesus yet. They've got a message from the two Marys, and they're on their way to meet him in, um, in, in Bethlehem. But they're in a rough place. Let's be honest about it. They've staked their futures on Jesus. They've given up everything. They've given up their jobs. They've given up their families. They've given up their reputations. Some of them didn't have huge reputations to begin with based on their their stature in society, but they've given up everything that they know, everything that's secure around them, and they've followed Jesus. They thought he was the Messiah, and now it seems that they were wrong. He was just a person, a remarkable person, but nonetheless, at the end of the day, he couldn't even save himself. He went up to the cross, and he died there. They must have been shattered. They must have been devastated. And they were. They, they went into hiding. They thought it was all over. Everything that they'd staked their lives on was gone. And they feared for their own lives. If they'd done this to the one we follow, what could happen to us, his followers, in the aftermath? But Jesus comes back into their lives, miraculously, and he gives them the greatest gift that he could. And that is purpose. Purpose greater than any adversity that would tempt them away from him. Now remember, Mary and Mary, they had this encounter um, at the garden tomb. But the gods had become like dead men. Do you remember that phrase? They'd become like dead men. So I guess that's either they were playing possum, lying on the ground, um, or they were unconscious, knocked down. And this was, these were a lot of gods. It wasn't one or two gods. Okay? They became like dead men at the sight of the angel. And now we step into the story at the point where they come to. And they realize that their necks are on the line. Literally, ESV is preferable. So um, here we go. While they were going, this is Mary. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while, he, while we were sleep, asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, this is a remarkable five verses, and I don't want to focus on it today, but I think it's um, worth mentioning a couple of things to contrast with what Christ does later. But um, there's a lot that can be said about the religious leaders here, isn't there? There's a lot that could be said about the soldiers here, isn't there? There's a lot that could be said about ourselves in both of those camps and how we deal with Christ. But right now, all I want to say to you is if I was a Roman soldier, I'd probably have done what those Roman soldiers did. I wasn't religious. As far as I'm concerned, my God was Caesar. I'm not a believer, but the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus crucified because he had blasphemed, according to them, claiming to be God. Now, they had just been witness 
to something remarkable. So what do they do? They go to the religious leaders and tell them what they saw. We just saw an angelic visitation. We saw the tombstone roll away. We saw Jesus wasn't there. We were knocked down flat, unconscious, and we, we don't know what happened. We can't explain it. But it looks to us, I'm putting words in their mouths. This might not have happened. This could have been in their minds, though. It looks to us like you guys made a really big mistake. You crucified him because he was blaspheming. But actually, we've just seen a whole lot of stuff which probably convinces us that he was God. So what do you religious leaders, with the God that they claimed to serve, they chose to hold on to illegitimate power and spread a rumor that perpetuates to this very day. A rumor that's become a stumbling block to many people. There's nothing more dangerous, there's nothing more blinding than illegitimate power. The fear of it being taken away from you can destroy great leaders and in the process a great many people. In contrast, the power that Christ offers his followers is not illegitimate because it comes directly from him and it flows through his followers, through his believers, because they are submitted to him. They never need to fear losing it because no one can take it away. And when no one can take that power away from you, you're free to live sacrificially. If you look at the model of Jesus, if you look at the example of his disciples, none of these people were looking for profile. Their power did not depend on their stature in society. It was more about following Christ's mandate and exercising that in his power. Because they could live like that, they didn't need the pomp and circumstance. They didn't need to have the influence. They didn't need to have the high seats of power within society. They could do what God had called them to do and not fear that anybody would take that power away from them. So this is happening with the religious leaders and the soldiers. The soldiers walked away, took the money, and shut up because they were afraid of losing their lives if it was found out what had happened. But in the meantime, we carry on in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now this is amazing, isn't it? When they saw him, they worshipped, but grown up to believe in Jesus. Because we are critical thinkers. We are skeptics. We have come so far in the realms of science. Can I just say something? Skepticism and critical thinking is in the heart of man, and it's been there from the very beginning, and it's part of what makes us special. Those doubters amongst this group had the same kinds of questions that we would have if the same thing happened in front of us today. To, to say that we've evolved past religion is a, a poor excuse, and it sounds a little bit more like the excuses that the religious leaders were using at the time. So, yes, there were some skeptics among them, but it seems that their skepticism was um, short-lived, and we know from other accounts that it definitely was short-lived. So they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We're going to focus on the Great Commission today. And um, a lot of people, when they hear, okay, we're going to look at the Great Commission, they may think, okay, we're going to be talking about international missions. We're going to be talking about reaching out to people around the world. And um, we're not. I think that is definitely a part of it. The, the global aspect of the, the Great Commission is, is there. The, the whole idea of making disciples of all nations is obvious. Um, and next week we'll hear a little bit about something that we are doing in, in South Africa, in Live Village, from, from Ryan and Taz. Um, but that's not where we're going today. There's a lot in here about our own context, about our own culture, about our own purpose, and that's what we're going to focus on. I love Easter. Um, when I had the opportunity to preach at Christmas, I would have said it then, I love Easter. I'd love to celebrate Easter at Christmas time. I'd love to celebrate Easter. If there was no Easter, there'd be no reason, and Paul, the apostle, is clear about this, but there'd be no reason to be a Christian. If we followed a good teacher who died, and that was that, we'd be foolish to have converted from Judaism. We'd be foolish to say that the Messiah had come. If there was no resurrection, there's no point. Absolutely no point. There'd be no hope for any of us. We'd be better off as hedonists. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Make the most of it, because you're not guaranteed anything past the here and now. So seek pleasure. That's your greatest purpose. That's where we would be if it wasn't for Easter. And we've had an amazing time over the last four weeks, haven't we? Celebrating all that Easter is. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that that means for us today. We started off looking at Christ's rejection and how his rejection guarantees us acceptance before God. Then we moved on to the seeming contradiction of his greatest glory being his death and his victory being the exact opposite of what the world and his followers expected. Then last week, we, we looked at how he overcame death, how on the third day he rose bodily from the grave. And it's important that he rose bodily from the grave. It wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. It was a physical resurrection with a new glorified body with some amazing upgrades But I'm so glad, as amazing as all of that is, that it doesn't stop there. That's not where the story ends. And most times, when you hear the Easter story, it ends there. Jesus is victorious over sin and death. He lived the life we could not, and he died the death that we deserved as a substitute for all who would believe. But it continues. It continues with a call to action for all who would believe. We're our favorite sport teams. I'm trying to deal with that one with my son at the moment. There's a lot of passion around football at the moment. 
especially when man you beat man city in the way that they did. So <laughs> he's jubilant. He's very proud of being a man you supporter at the moment. But there's a sort of sense of allegiance and getting behind something that's bigger than yourself. And I can see it in him when that happens. Whether you like man you or not, you can understand the concept. We're desperate for it. But with Jesus' death and resurrection, he's given all people their true and greatest purpose. And that purpose is to be in relationship with him and, and share the good news of that possibility with others. You see, before Christ and still today in the minds of, of most religions around the world, people can only hope to do better than the next guy. Just be better than the next guy. That's as much as you can hope to be. And hopefully when it comes to assessment day, um, you'll be the side of the threshold and you'll be guaranteed an eternal life. That's kind of like the, the picture that a lot of people have. Since Jesus' death and resurrection, there's been a, a picture across churches, across the world, that that message has changed, and has changed in the following way, that you no longer need to do anything. You don't need to be better than the next guy to earn your spot in the afterlife, because it's guaranteed, based on Christ's perfect sacrifice. And that's true, but it's, partial, it's part of the truth. And it's really important that we get this balance right because otherwise what we end up with is a bunch of Christians that walk around with a guarantee in their pocket of a place in heaven doing whatever they want on earth. And you might think, well, what's so bad about that? Just imagine a mass murderer ending up in heaven because he felt that he didn't have to do anything differently since becoming a Christian. That Christ's death on the cross was enough in and of itself. But the power of that death on that is told. Christ, risen from the dead, appears to his disciples. And it's not just to prove that he is truly alive. It was to give them a mandate, an action based on what had just happened. He gave them a partnership contract. A purpose that supersedes all other reasons for being. They were to spread the good news across the world to every people group in every nation and they were to draw in disciples and teach them to do the same until he returns. And some people may look at the Great Commission and say, yeah, that's fine for the first disciples that became apostles. That was for them. But in the commission is a cycle. There is a loop. And I'll I'll point it out to you in a moment. But there is no way that we as the church can get away from the fact that the Great Commission is for us. It's for each and every one of us. This is real purpose. This is, this is the reason we, we are to exist. Not just to be the recipients of this great gift, but that we give that great gift to others, being empowered by Christ himself. So I heard it this morning again on the radio, this conversation around faith being a private matter and not allowed in the, the public sphere. That might be the political mandate of the day. That was the unintended consequence of the separation of church and state for sure. 
Perhaps your faith isn't meant to influence development of public policy, but there is no way on earth that the intention of the separation of church and state was to mean that the church was to shut the faces up and never speak about their faith in public. That was never the intention. Your faith is not private. By definition, it's public. That doesn't mean that we all have to stand up and shout on street corners. It doesn't mean that we have to be rude and crass. But we certainly shouldn't be hiding our faith from others. If you believe in Christ, a commission, and they're intertwined throughout. Firstly being authority. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Before telling us to do anything for him, in verse 19, he tells us what he can do for us. In verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, just in case you're unsure, authority means the right and the power to do something. He has the right and the power to achieve what he is setting out to do. So Jesus means that he has absolute right and all power to do as he pleases in heaven and on earth. There is no authority in heaven which can call the will of Jesus into question and there is no authority on earth that can call the will of Jesus into question. And no power on heaven or on earth can frustrate his will when he exerts all of his power to achieve it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Without this declaration of Jesus' authority, we would never confidently make disciples. On what possible basis do we have the right to tell anybody that they should change their whole way of thinking and acting and become a disciple of Jesus Christ? There's only one thing that could justify that sort of outlandish proselytizing all over the world, and it's, it's not imperialism. It's not Americanism. It's not evangelicalism. It's the kingdom of God. It's his authority. It's that Jesus rose from the dead and has been given an absolute authority over natural and supernatural forces so that every human and every angelic being will give an account to him. If Jesus has that kind of authority, then we not only have the right, but actually we're bound by love to tell other people to change and to become his disciples. The only way you could get away from that is if you said that um, Jesus doesn't have that kind of authority, he's, he's a deceiver, or the Bible has um, painted such a distorted image of him that we don't really know who he was, but to, to do that, to say that Jesus was a deceiver is unwarranted. To call the Bible a distortion of his character is unwarranted, and we, we look at that in depth multiple times. So what we have then is a man that has all authority in heaven and on earth, 
believe it or not, more than President Trump, more than Prime Minister May, more than all the CEOs of all the corporations in the world put together. He has that much authority, way more. He is the absolute sovereign of the universe. And one way or the other, every knee will bow to him. And therefore, notice, go therefore into verse 19. Those who bend the knee of allegiance to his authority, those of us who believe that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, have the right and the power to go and make disciples. The command is not arbitrary. It's reasonable. Jesus didn't say to us, do it because I told you and that's it. He said, do it because all authority is mine. Nothing is more reasonable and more loving than to plead with rebellious creatures of Jesus Christ that they turn and give their devotion to the King of Kings who will have the last say in this world. Secondly, I want to look at discipleship. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Our mission is to make disciples for Jesus. Go and make disciples. The most important word I think Jesus ever said about becoming a disciple was Luke 14 verse 27. And it kind of just clears up. Disciples aren't just followers. They're not just believers. They're not just people that assent to a concept. Luke 14, 27 says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, bearing a cross does not primarily mean having hard times. You know, like the weather. You know, I was moaning about February and March, and I could walk around going, oh, you know, I've just got to bear my cross. That's not primarily what is meant by Jesus when he says that disciples need to bear their cross. It's not talking about trivial adversity or things that make our lives a little more challenging than we'd like, um, even though we've taken the saying and, and run with it in that sense. It means going to Golgotha. It means dying with Christ. Dying to the old attitudes of envy and strife and jealousy, and anger, and selfishness, and pride, and turning to follow Jesus in newness of life. When we make disciples, we bid people to come and die to their old destructive ways, and to live for Jesus, who loved them, and gave himself for them. So discipleship is about death and resurrection. It's about following Jesus. It's about following the model of Jesus, not just saying you have a relationship with him. Thirdly, I'd like to go into baptism. It's part of the Great Commission I said last week. Don't just make disciples of all nations, but baptize. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The meaning of baptism develops out of this meaning that we're talking about of, of discipleship. If, if becoming a disciple of Jesus means dying to your old life and then walking in newness of life with Christ as Jesus taught, then it's 
It's inevitable, isn't it, that the symbolic act of that conversion would come to signify a death and a resurrection. And that's just what happened. When Paul was defending himself, um, defending his ministry um, in front of Agrippa, um, no, sorry, I've got the wrong one. I'll go back to that later. What Paul says about it in Romans 6 verses 3 to 4 is this. All of us who have been baptized, he's speaking to the Romans here, and he's saying all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So Jesus commands baptism as normal in the commission because discipleship making and baptism, sorry, baptism is a, an outward symbol of what discipleship is. Death to self-reliance and a new way of life following Jesus. Then it says in verse 19 that we are to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think the point of that is, is very, very obvious. The point is that every member of the Trinity is active in the conversion of a person that baptism signifies. When a person becomes a disciple of Jesus, he relates in a new way to the entire Godhead. The Father becomes their heavenly Father. They become his children. The Son becomes your Lord. The Spirit, our indwelling enabler, the one that empowers everything that he has commanded. And in the act of baptism... We submit ourselves to all three, and we pledge allegiance to all three. And that's why we celebrate when we have a baptismal service. And that's why it's so wonderful when that baptismal service happens at Easter, because the symbolism is so much clearer that what we're doing here isn't just an initiation into a club. We're saying to everyone who's watching that the man who you once knew, the lady that you once knew, is now dead. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. In Galatians 6.14, Paul again says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now we move through this whole thing and obviously the logical place to land is number four, obedience. Teaching them to observe. Teaching these disciples who have been baptized to observe all that I have commanded you. I'd like to just read a quote from A.W. Tozer. Um, he's not everyone's cup of tea and probably because he, he stirred the pot quite a lot, especially in American evangelical churches, um, but he was quite straight about the fact that saving faith is powerful enough to change a person's life. And uh, he makes that very clear in the statement. He says, saving faith is irrevocable, total commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Bible recognizes no faith 
that does not lead to obedience, nor does it recognize any obedience that does not spring from faith. In the New Testament, faith was for each believer a beginning, not an end. It was a journey, not a bed in which to lie while waiting for the day of our Lord's triumph. Believing was not a once-done act. It was an attitude of heart and mind which inspired and enabled the believer to take up his cross and follow the Lamb wherever he went. And Paul, while he was defending himself in front of King Agrippa in Acts 26.20, says this, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Making disciples means more than getting conversions and baptisms. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Conversion and baptism are essential, but so is the ongoing teaching of what Jesus taught. The new life of a disciple is a life of obedience to Jesus, to his commandments, or is it all? It's no new life at all. It's worthless to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ in your baptism and then ignore his commandments. So all disciple makers must be teachers and disciples must be continual learners. That's what makes us so different to a believer or an observer or, or one who holds faith. You become a disciple. The word is specific and clear. Fifthly then, the commission ends with, with comfort. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this is really important because teaching people to obey Christ is not easy. Obeying Christ is not easy. I think we can all tell those stories. And, and when we're with people that we trust a little more, we probably do. And maybe we need to share those stories a little bit more with each other and be a little more honest about our challenges as we sincerely endeavor to obey and follow Jesus' teachings. But it's hard. It requires a massive amount of spiritual power. And Christ was so gracious to leave us with a, a word of of comfort and power at the end of his commission. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The reason that promise is packed with power is the one who made it, in verse 18, tells us, has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's not powerful and distant. He's not powerful and, and far away and removed from us. Nor is he present and weak. He's neither of those. He's with us, and he is all-powerful forever. So remember this. The Great Commission is sandwiched in a powerful grace, and so are we. Can Phil and the worship team come up? Yeah? Okay. Um, So this morning... Let's dedicate ourselves afresh to obeying Jesus and making disciples. But let's, let's do it 
by remembering that we are sandwiched in grace. The promise of his absolute authority and power on the one side and the promise of his constant presence on the other. By way of um, responding, I just want to look at a couple of things. I know we're all in, in very different places on our journey with Christ. But I trust that if we say that we believe, and the majority of us in this room say that we believe, I trust that we are disciples. That we're not just mouthing belief, but we're being obedient. For some of you, you may say that I'm not a believer, and um, I would plead with you to yield your heart to Christ. His command to his disciples was not arbitrary. He has all authority. There's no lack of evidence for that. Please don't be like those religious leaders that covered up the truth of Christ's resurrection for the sake of self-preservation. Don't close your eyes to the truth of his lordship. Submit your hearts to him. Don't be like those soldiers that when they realized that their necks were on the line, they took the money and ran. Submit your hearts to him. Submit your hearts to the evidence that is plain before you. For others, you know that you're not obedient but you've allowed yourself to be lulled into a false sense of security. You say to yourself, I confess that he is Lord, therefore I'm a disciple. With you, I plead to wake up. You can only call him Lord if you obey his commands. There's no discipleship without obedience and change in your life. While we worship you need to be honest with yourself and with God. And you need to ask yourself, what do you need to change to be more obedient to Him? And for others, you love Him. He's changing your life. You feel that dynamic in you day by day. But you're fearful. You're scared of sharing your faith, of making disciples. It all seems to be a bit dangerous or a bit rude and arrogant. It could damage your reputation. It could ruin your job. Today I plead with you, can you stop using those things as excuses for not sharing your faith with others? Whatever challenges or difficulties you face now, because of Christ is actually short-lived and inconsequential when faced with the reality of forever with Him, face to face. This very good news that we hold on to, that we've been given with, that we've been given, that we've been entrusted with, needs to be shared with others. It's not a private affair. If it was a private affair, it would have died thousands of years ago. There would be no Christianity. 
that needs to be shared with others. It would be hateful to do otherwise. While we worship, can you spend some time with God asking Him to give you wisdom, boldness, and love for the lost that overwhelms your fears? Could we do that? Okay. Let's stand. Let's, let's worship. I'll just finish in prayer. Lord, I want to thank you that that you have done something which we, we can't even sometimes fathom how wonderful it is. The whole idea of God coming to earth as a man and living a life that is perfect and then to willingly take on the death that we deserved and as you are on that cross feeling the, the, the sense of all of the sin of every person in the world heaping up upon your shoulders a feeling that you'd never had before, sin that suddenly separated you from the Father that you were in clear communication with, that you spoke to daily, that through, through your own testimony you said you didn't act except for doing what the Father told you to do. Suddenly that sense of separation coming on you and you finding yourself in the place that we were, that we are. And taking on suffering in every sense that we could imagine in our place. So that we could come before your Father without any sense of guilt, without any sense of isolation or separation, is just remarkable to us, God. And Lord, your resurrection on the third day gives all of us such hope. Not just for the by and by or sometime in the future, but for now. Lord, because your resurrection wasn't just about guaranteeing ourselves a place in eternity. It was about becoming partners with you on your mission of spreading the very good news that all of the depravity, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the death, all of the sin, that is our responsibility no longer separates us from you. And Lord, we pray that that message will continue to go forward through your partners, the church. So Lord, we pray that those ears that are hearing that message for the first time or possibly just starting to glimpse your glory, that those ears would be opened, Lord, that they would not deny that, that truth that they would submit, that they'd yield to you and that they would become your disciples. Lord, for those of us that, that have uh, fooled ourselves or lulled ourselves into a sense of complacency, saying that it's okay to carry on as we are because we believe in Jesus, Lord, I pray that you give us a sense of urgency, that you open our eyes to the seriousness of the situation. That when you called us to believe, you called us to be disciples. To be ones that imitate you. To pick up our cross and follow you. 
to die to ourselves and to come to newness of life in you. And for those of us that are afraid, Holy Spirit, I pray that you fill our hearts with love. Lord, the kind of love that you have for us, the kind of love that overwhelms us and shatters any fear that we may have of retribution or someone coming against us or or persecuting us or whatever it is because we want to share your message of love. Fill our hearts with love and a desire to share the great message that you've entrusted with us. In your name, amen.